Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am here with Doug Eck at the O'Reilly AI Conference. Doug is a research scientist on the Google Brain team who's principally focused on the Magenta project. Doug, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Sam. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. So this podcast, while I focus on interviews now, I originally focused on covering news in the space, and I covered the Magenta project when it launched. And I remember I remember this vividly because my daughter was in a summer program or leadership program or something like I live in St. Louis and I had to drive her downstate and I spent a bunch of time on the trip back listening to something about I might have been listening to my notes or articles that I had doing like text to voice about the Magenta project. And so I'm excited to finally get a chance to talk to you about it and learn more about it. And yeah, so welcome once again. (laughs) I'm happy to be here a little over a year later from our, our initial launch and still still at it. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think this is the first time from a you know, from an interview perspective that we're really getting into the intersection of AI and art, which is an area that I've been wanting to talk a little bit more about as well. So very excited to have you on. Earlier today you delivered a keynote at the conference. And we'll jump into that. But first, why don't you walk us through your background and how you got into AI? So how did I get into AI? Good question. My undergraduate was in English literature, creative creative writing. And I finished that. And it turns out, some of your your listeners may not know this, but it's hard to get a job when your undergraduate's in English (laughs) literature. You actually have to work at something. So, you know, there's David Foster Wallace, and then there's me. <laughs> I became a database programmer, which actually I love coding, and, you know, worked for a while as, a, as just a coder, you know, coding databases in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and playing music. The pinnacle of my music career happened in Albuquerque as well, playing for dozens of fans in nice. coffee houses all around nice. the street, you know. Is there a nice scene there? <laughs> I don't know. I just was doing what I could. <laughs> you know? I was passionate about it. And I drifted back into grad school. I think I was just, you know, for the intellectual challenge of it, and, and it made more sense to stay with computer science. So actually, I think it was one of, the, one of the better decisions that I made in my life. I just naively took the joint, you know, the overlap of two things I was passionate about, which is computing mm-hmm. and music. And I, I just said, well, I, I like music and I like computers, so what can you do with computers and music? And, mm-hmm. you know, I was 24, and that was what I was thinking. And mm-hmm. I said, hey, let's do AI. Let's do AI and music. Hmm. So I wanted to work with a guy named Doug Hofstetter at Indiana University. Okay. I ended up actually not doing my PhD under his direction, but took courses with him and ended up working with some other advisors there. Just kind of dove into a, a PhD in music and music cognition and, and computer science. Wow. And kind of kept at it. And eventually, you know, eventually ended up at Google, having been a faculty member for a while at the University of Montreal. Okay. But really it was kind of following a passion, just doing what I thought I was good at. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So maybe tell us a little bit about your keynote today and along the way, weave in Magento, or you can start with Magento and then go into the keynote, whatever kind of makes the most sense. Sure. Today's keynote had a particular focus that I think is important, which is that we can't do machine learning for music or art without the music and the art. 
Mm. So, mm-hmm. you know, machine learning is about learning how to solve a problem. You know, you right. build an algorithm that itself can learn how to solve a problem. So I guess it stands to reason that if you want to build machine learning algorithms that can can make music or make art or be tools for musicians and tools for artists, they have to see the right data. They have to see the world in the right way. And so I talked about two projects. One of them came out today on the Magenta blog. Please check it out, g.co slash magenta. It's a recurrent neural network trained to to make piano music perform a score that it writes. Mm-hmm. And crucially, it's trained on on real piano performances captured in MIDI. Mm-hmm. And that it's captured in MIDI really isn't that important. We still we still know where, you know, all of the keys were pressed and how long they were pressed and how, mm-hmm. you know, how how hard, you know, the velocity, etc. For your listeners who aren't familiar with MIDI, think of that as just kind of a way to store the events that happen when you play, you know, a synthesizer or electric keyboard mm-hmm. or an ap- appropriate piano. And it turns out that when you when you train on this data versus a bunch of musical scores, mm-hmm. that is with no performance timing, you know, just the score. Right. The resulting output of the models is is dramatically different, and to my ear, at least, much more human sounding, almost delicate sometimes in terms of how the the model figures out how to play the piano. So I thought that was a really nice story. The and scores that you played during the keynote were incredible. I mean, the the after, like there was the before and the after. Yeah. The before is just the model trained on the score, but the after was incorporating in. I guess the more subtle effects like, I don't know, attack and delay, I guess, are the ways I'm thinking of it, but like just the force with which they press the nodes and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's and the timing, it. subtle timing differences. Yeah. And yeah, I never heard anything like that from a computer-generated yeah. program. Yeah, it's quite nice. I mean, I haven't done a thorough enough literature search to know if, you know, I'm I haven't heard anything like it either. I mean, hopefully mm-hmm. people will come up and say, hey, we did this cool work before, and we'll say, great, we'll credit it, we'll learn from it. You know, this is a research project, you know. We're trying to always give credit where it's due, but I haven't heard anything quite like this. And I think you're right. You know, the way to think about it is, you know, Chopin wrote a piece of music, right? Mm-hmm. Yet we still love listening to different pianists interpret that music. Right. And especially with that kind of music, the interpretation actually matters. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't if you don't believe it, it's it's really entertaining to to listen to a truly robotic performance of a piece of music. Right. It just doesn't work. Right. And I think you know, in modern pop and rock and jazz, it's even more so the case. Like. Think of Jimi Hendrix playing the Star Spangled Banner. Mm, mm-hmm. Like, we're not listening to that because of the score, right? <laughs> because this melody is so good, right? right it has cultural right. significance, and it's this carrier for the sounds that Jimmy's making with his guitar. Yeah. So, like, this idea that the expressive timing matters is, you know, if you kind of unpeel the onion a little bit, is pretty, pretty clear. And it's really fun to see what a model can do when it finally has that data. Mm-hmm. Well, you made a comment that I thought was really, really interesting, and that was that, you know, what this work gets you closer to is looking at the keyboard or other instruments in other cases, but as, you know, sensors that are capturing sensory motor control from humans all the way up, you know, from fingers to muscles to, you know, neural transmission and that kind of stuff. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So first, as and did I capture that you correctly? Did. I think you did. Yeah. So first, in terms of just the model, yeah, what's being captured is how hard the finger hit the key, and mm-hmm. there are lots of just kind of the data picks up on you know human constraints that, that mm-hmm. I think are important to music. Right. And I've always been fascinated by the connections between dance and music, mm-hmm. and between motor control in general and music. Mm-hmm. There's lots, you know, piles of books written about why is music here? Is it a, maybe creating co-presence between people? 
or it's about motor control synchronization. It's about just having fun. But in any case, it's clear that there's a that the motoric aspect is really important. Mm-hmm. Same thing is true for drawing, right? The, the constraints of the hand, what the hand can do, I think, is really important, whether it's holding a paintbrush you know, or a pencil. I guess, arguably, if you move to, to Photoshop, you're in a different world. I'm not sure mm-hmm. that it matters how your hand holds the mouse, but maybe there, too. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool that the, we're able to train on the, on, on the data that, that drives that. I could say more about this if you want. Sure, okay, absolutely. So the, other thing, yeah. the other thing that I would add is a lot of people work in machine learning right now are working with, with images and with audio. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we are too, and I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. But I'm always concerned by, or not concerned by, but intrigued by the idea that when we as, as people, when we make new artifacts, whether it's like a, a new painting or a new piece of music, we tend to actually not do it pixel by pixel or, you know, mm-hmm. we don't have the control, even even our voices, we don't really have control over the waveform, right? Right, right? We have a right, buzzer right. in our throat called our, you know, called vocal cords, and then we're right. shaping our vocal tract, right? It's very, very, in machine learning terms, it's, it's, it's a pretty low dimensional control yeah. surface, right? So we're not dealing with like millions of parameters. We're able to like move some muscles around and make something vibrate. With playing a piano, we build this thing out of wood and metal, and then fundamentally we bang it with our fingers, right? <laughs> and so, you know, I think I think trying to do machine learning for art and music, trying to move into these spaces that are really low dimensional, and by mm-hmm. that I mean, you know, you've only got eighty-eight keys, and that mm-hmm. may seem like a lot until you think of the number of pixels there are in an image, right. or the number of of moving numbers there are in a one second of of CD quality audio. It's mm-hmm. a re- relatively low number of parameters mm-hmm. to work with, and I think that. That ties to these really beautiful ideas about, you know, what is meaning, but at some level compression, like just pulling mm-hmm. the, in, the important bits out of, of a hard problem and right. it's a little easier to get there. I'm, fil- I'm getting too philosophical, but. No, I mean, it's an interesting conversation and it reminds me a little bit of uh, not much of an audiophile, admittedly, or not at all an audiophile, really, admittedly. But you get headphones. I mean, come on. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you get people argue over, you know, CDs versus vinyl records and like the. You know, they'll get into these debates about the richness of the vinyl records or transistors versus tubes and that kind of thing. And it does, you know, when you think about it in this context, it does kind of think of, you know, the machine learning, the input that we're giving to machine learning models in a lot of ways is kind of reductionist. And do we, you know, how do we make sure we don't reduce out the essence of the thing, right? Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, so first, I think that, we are always at risk of doing that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what makes the problem retain, you know, retain for me its beauty is that, you know, we're always there. Like, I'm not interested in a machine learning algorithm where I can just push a button mm-hmm. and have it do its work. I mean, I think it's cool. Like the samples we posted today, we're basically right. pushing a button, but that's more or less to understand how the model works. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think these get interesting when you close the loop and you have musicians able to work with them and use them mm-hmm. as ways to kind of expand possibilities or create some some line and then you add another line etc like that mm, i think mm-hmm. that becomes mm-hmm. becomes less reductionist right but yeah look let's be real what are these bottles doing they're basically warping data they're doing some tra- they're taking some numbers in and they're transforming them right. and they're pushing some numbers out hopefully you've done the math right and you can <laughs> you can roll the dice and sample from these and get lots of different really yeah. interesting instances but yeah i mean reductionist is a pretty fair term mm-hmm. are we close to being able to do uh, like a music style transfer, like, you know, I've got this rough idea of, you know, a score or melody or, you know, I don't know what the input would be, but, you know, Chopinize this for me. 
the demo that you played was kind of evocative of that kind of idea for me. If we rely on the the representation of MIDI, where what we're manipulating are the notes and when they happen and how many of them there are, and we're adding and subtracting notes and we're performing them, mm-hmm. yeah, I think we can we can imagine with some work being able to do a style transfer over something. However, can we take an Adele tune and make it sound like it was done by, I mentioned Jimi Hendrix, right? Right. It's a very different kind of style transform. Or yeah. can we can we take an Adele tune and make it sound like bebop jazz from the audio? Right. We're very, very far from that. And mm. I think, to be honest, I think that's more getting at the flavor of what style transfer for images does. Mm-hmm. And the reason I bring it up is that there's a nice trick in style transfer for images, mm-hmm. you know, for example, taking a, a painting and making it look more like Picasso, which is that it's it's looking at, at little patches in the image and the patches are varying sizes, but it's mm-hmm. always local, right? Mm-hmm. L- literally, you can imagine just like moving a little spotlight over, over the image mm-hmm. and then doing transforms at some layer of granularity. So you can mm-hmm. like get thicker brush strokes versus mm-hmm. thinner ones, right? But in music, you know, music unfolds in time and it's not always the case that it's the nearest sounds that are the most important. There's not this locality, this spatial mm-hmm, locality mm-hmm. in music. And I think, I think that would make like a style transfer so that something sounded more like, you know, an electric guitar quite, quite a bit harder. Mm. I don't, certainly the tools that are used for image style transfer don't quite make sense, mm-hmm. which is why, by the way, we don't see, lots of groups have tried this. We, we don't see compelling audio-based style transfers. Okay. We're getting there. We'll, we'll get there. I mean, someone will figure it out, but it's just, it doesn't sort of fall out for free from the, from the image side. Right, right. So why don't you walk us through the kind of the technical underpinnings, the architecture of the, the project that we just talked about? The project Performance RNN, we give things names just to have something to talk about. It's sure. not an important name, but Performance RNN is a recurrent neural network mm-hmm. called LSTM, long short-term memory, that is listening to, to lots and lots of performances, in this case, piano performances. What it's seeing is actually a very simple encoding of that performance, a note turned on that had this velocity, mm-hmm. a note turned off, let's advance time, let's advance the clock. So mm-hmm. it's almost and- like... Imagine you've got a paper punch and you're cutting holes. You punch, punch, mm-hmm. punch, and then you move forward and you punch, punch, punch. It's a mm-hmm. very, very, very simple way to reduce, to represent the data. But mm-hmm. it's not losing any of the data. You can reconstruct the entire performance from there. Right? Mm-hmm. The recurrent neural network is, is trying to solve an interesting problem. It's listening, so to speak. It's processing this information. It's trying to predict what's coming next. Mm-hmm. And in our case, it can predict, hey, generate another note, turn off a note, or move the clock. And every time it gets it right, every time it predicts correctly what it's being trained on, you know, it gets a good job. Mm-hmm. And every time it gets it wrong, then we adjust the weights of the of the network. Mm-hmm. So these these are weighted connections between computational units or nodes in the network, so that it does better next time. And so it's it's really playing kind of a funny telephone game, you know, where you maybe that's not the right word for it. I was trying to, I had an analogy for this, but like kind of a weird thought you know you're, you're listening you've heard six notes of a melody and you're trying to guess what the seventh note is mm-hmm. even people aren't going to get it right all the time because there's lots of possible ways right. in which things right. can go so in the end these models they don't memorize specific tunes instead they kind of figure out patterns of mm-hmm. what should come next given these previous notes and in fact they learn about chords they learn about arpeggiation they learn about okay. scales because those happen in the data okay and when we want to make a piece of music 
we do take a clever, very simple trick that's been around for 20 years. You start with a note or two, mm-hmm. and then you pre- you predict what should come next. Mm-hmm. And that's like a not an it's not an exact answer. The model says these are the possible things that could mm-hmm. come next. You choose one based upon those probabilities, mm-hmm. and then you feed it in. Like you feed it's you feed the network's output back in as input, mm-hmm. and you kind of keep going called auto regression. And in that way, you end up like composing a new score. Okay. How many order of magnitude musical samples are you training this on? And are you training them on full scores or snippets or does that matter? It does matter. In the end, for technical reasons, you end up kind of chunking things, but we have ways to do that automatically. So Mm -hmm. in terms of when the model receives the input, it it processes an entire score. Mm -hmm. I think it's on the order of... 20 or 30,000 pieces of music in this case. It's not huge. They're all performances mm-hmm. and they're all from solo piano. Okay. So, and, and did, did you commission them or collect no, these them? Are, or? So these are all pieces that were, you know, like Chopin, you know, it's all public old, you know, okay. old classical music and their performances that come from a number of sources all kind of freely out there on the web. And you okay. can, you can track those down if you follow the Magenta blog where we have, okay. Like, probably not interesting to go into where the data sources actually come from but uh-huh. there but behind it all are, are people having performed these for sometimes for competitions okay one of the sources is that you can use is is yamaha has a particular kind of piano that's like a player piano called the disclavier and they've had competitions where very you know top tier pianists come and play and at the same time the piano records all of the movements of the hammers so mm. you have the trace left behind of what they played oh wow so we're training you know, we can train on data like that okay oh really interesting so you've got this you know twenty thirty thousand and were they all specifically Chopin or no, like how much no, variation do you have variation in the... across the, the classical tradition? Okay. And we have other, we can collect other data sets. In fact, you know, it's perfectly reasonable for someone to actually just collect a few hours of playing of their own. And that's going to be enough to train a model. Hmm. Not one hour, but if you, if like one of your listeners is say like a jazz pianist and does jazz improv, mm-hmm. you know, you could, you could train a model on just a few hours of, of improv and then they'd have their own. Hmm. Like the model would encode their own playing style, which is kind of right. cool, right? right? And then when you sample from the model, you can kind of hear some some of your own aspects of playing. Wow. Yeah. To what degree was the network architecture for this particular neural network? How is it unique from other network architectures that are used for, you know, other LSTM-based network architectures that are used for, like, you know, the kind of thing you do to... You know, we've seen the projects where we were getting scripts auto-generated. Right. Ross Goodwin, yeah. yeah. Shout out to Ross. Yeah. <laughs> the network is actually pretty much a generic LSTM. What's somewhat novel is the representation of the data, so what the model's mm. trying to predict. There have been other people who have predicted, like, the duration of, of a note in terms of its relative duration in the score. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to generate a middle C, and it's going mm-hmm. to be a 16th note. Mm-hmm. And we've simply extended that to say, well, forget about whether it's a 16th note. Instead, let's just move the clock forward some number of milliseconds, and that way we'll just learn about real time. Right. So if that's not clear, that means we don't need a metronome to figure out what a quarter note is, right? If that's not clear, like what a quarter note is is that it's the quarter of a measure, and what a measure is is defined mm-hmm. by the beat. And if the beat's fast, right. a quarter note takes less time to be played, right? right? Here we're just saying we're just going to, look at the, the time of the piece as it unfolds in, in the performance. And so the model doesn't know what a quarter note is at all. It just right. generates notes and moves the clock. Mm. And that, I, th- I think that's unique. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, we just put this blog posting out and we're in the middle of writing a paper around it. And it's pretty hard in research to do something that's completely new. You always find that yeah. someone did something <laughs> similar, right? I mean, there's almost nothing new under the stars and sun. 
But nice. Well, we'll definitely include the audio that you shared in your keynote in mm-hmm. the show notes for folks to check out. Oh, yeah, uh, it was really, do. really compelling. You also talked about a, a project based on the, the Google Draw experiment. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that one. That was an AI experiment called QuickDraw. It was done by the Creative Lab folks in New York at Google. And what they did was they, we already had some image classifiers that we can use that, are, that can identify like you know, tens of thousands of different kinds of images. You know, mm-hmm. you see, you know, you point your, your mobile device and it recognizes through the camera that that's a lamp or that's a dog or that's, right. you know, a cell phone. And so someone had a clever idea of saying, well, what if, could it identify a sketch of a dog or a sketch of a cell phone? Mm-hmm. It turns out, yeah, mm-hmm. it can. <laughs> so you get to play Pictionary against an image classifier. Mm-hmm. Actually, you're playing Pictionary with an image classifier. Remember, Pictionary is collaborative, right? right. And so, you know, you're, you're given a prompt like, hey, you have 20 seconds to draw a dog and you try to draw a dog. And if the image classifier can guess it, then you get a point, right? Right. So at some point we, we decided we wanted to use this data for, for machine learning. So we changed the messaging on the site. So it said, Hey, we're going to, we, you know, if you want to play the game, we're just going to keep you know, anonymized drawings around. And we're going to learn from them. Mm-hmm. Right? We're going to train. So, so we kept that data. We gave it back to the community to use for other, for artistic purposes. And people have done tons of crazy things with this data. What are some of those things? Oh, so this, by the way, this isn't our machine learning. This is just the pe- people's drawings. Okay. Analyzing how different people in different cultures draw circles. Turns out like some cultures draw circles clockwise and other uh-huh. cultures draw them counterclockwise. And you, 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 you kind of cluster things. The way that people draw chairs, Asian cultures apparently draw chairs often. I'm going to get these backwards because, yeah, they, they usually draw chairs. Like from the lights in th- up or in, something? No, like it's in three, or... whether you do it in 3D or 2D. But their oh, okay. chair is just like an H almost, right? right? Which right. is what I would draw. And I think that's actually an Asian pattern. Okay. Or whether you actually draw it kind of in 3D. Okay. Yeah, someone else outside of Google took the data, the circle stuff. It's like a blog posting from a couple of weeks ago. I encourage your I listeners to find one. it. Just a Google like quick draw circles. Mm-hmm. And it has you draw a circle and like, tells you some things about the circle you drew and, and analyzes the circles from around the world. Hmm. And so, I don't know, you just kind of get this kind of fun. I mean, it's not world changing, but it's interesting, right? right. There's a kind of sociology right. behind it. Anyway. I digress. We had this data, mm-hmm. and David Ha, who is the primary person on this paper, decided to train a, a, a recurrent neural network to try to reproduce the strokes. And we have okay. the strokes as they appeared in order. So, you know, if you were trying to draw a garden, if you drew a flower first and then you drew the grass, then it would be reproduced in that order. Mm-hmm. This was a slightly different model. This was two different recurrent neural networks and an intermediate representation, but maybe that's too far afield, too. The upshot is you can now generate new instances of like dogs or cats or, you know, there are several hundred classes mm-hmm. and kind of try to get a better understanding of what, what people are doing when they draw them and also have a way to, to explore the space. Mm. So what exactly does that mean? The, you've got a kind of encoder, decoder, encoder setup where mm-hmm. the decoder is learning how people are drawing these things and you've got an encoder that is trying to you know, given a thing that it's trying to create, create that thing, or I think you reverse the terms. Reverse, uh, yeah, you reverse the terms. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. So the one way to think about it is that the work that I described with the performance RNN, mm-hmm. you could think of as a decoder. It's not encoding into some different representation. It's basically just taking the score and trying to predict the next note. This model does something slightly different. It takes the strokes and tries to encode them into a vector into mm-hmm. a, a sequence of numbers. Mm-hmm. And then only from that sequence of numbers 
does it try to reproduce or decode the drawing? So it's getting these strokes in. It's pushing some information via a recurrent neural network into this kind of intermediate representation called our latent space, if you want the technical term. And then it's trying to then recreate the drawing by decoding it using another recurrent neural network. Mm -hmm. And the crucial, the reason that we use this, this intermediate step of this latent space is that if we've constructed it correctly, we can do a really nice job of generating new samples with lots of variants for the same problem. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Elaborate on that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No idea how technical they get. So for example, we could take the drawing of a face that mm-hmm. has like almost like a triangle, uh, inverted triangle, a really pointy chin, mm-hmm. right? We might, and we could run that through the encoder and that would give us some, some vector. Mm-hmm. And then we might take another face that's a big round face, with, you know, with, with, with a big round nose and run that through the encoder and that'll give us another vector mm-hmm. in this latent space, right? But now we have these two vectors. They're not very big, mm-hmm. maybe a few dozen numbers or maybe a hundred numbers. And we could just take the average of those two. Mm-hmm. And that should, if if we've trained our model right, give us the face that kind is somewhere, core, yeah, kind of between of this face. triangular face and between this circular face, right? right? If and you do that enough, you get to like the meaning of a face, right? Is that at the some, idea? At some yeah, level? I mean, you capture, yeah, I mean, in a hand wavy philosophical way, you get the Platonic face, right? Right. In a less ridiculous way, at the very least, you get like. What's happening is that that latent space is forced is encoding those aspects of the face that are the most important to remember if you want to be able to cover the variance of faces. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's captured something really important, some of the really important aspects of faces. Mm-hmm. So in that latent space, as you move around that space, and maybe you generate some random vector in that space, mm-hmm. you should still be able to decode some kind of face, mm-hmm. right? It's called variational model. Okay. So I don't know if that captures the, the gist of the, the gist of the tech. I think the one of the take-home messages is the goal, the reasons why we're caring about having this embedding space, this latent Mm -hmm. space, is that we can use it as a way to give artists more control over a model like that. Mm -hmm. So for example, you could take, you you could draw a face and encode it through the encoder. And then now you have this vector and you could perturb that vector, you could move that vector around. Mm -hmm. You could use this as a starting point for some, you know, some other work with the model. You could just email that vector to someone else and they could reproduce it. They could know what you think about. Now, granted, this is all in the context of drawings that took 20 seconds to make using a mouse on a computer. So our expectations are not that, you know, people will go, oh, I can make, you know, the next Chagall painting or whatever with this. But that Mm -hmm. in principle, you have this space where, you know, we can encode some drawing into some space that is kind of really good at storing drawings. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we can carry that around and we can decode not just that original drawing, but tons of drawings like it. Mm-hmm. And then maybe, you know, be able to move forward with, you know, possibilities for, for moving around that space for reasons like for animation and things like that. Okay. It's interesting. One of the other, one of the interviews I did yesterday that'll be coming out at the same time in this O'Reilly series is, was talking about Wartevec. And it's interesting that to, kind of think about all of the various, we talked about several applications of embeddings in the context of, you know, word to vec and, and related things, but, you know, here's This is definitely drawing to vec. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you, you encode your samples into this vector or a vector space, and then you use that to 
you can use that as you know, almost like a filter for creating things through the decoding process. And I think one of the examples you showed was, and contextualize this for us, but you had folks draw like an eight-legged pig. You encoded that and then decoded it using the kind of the pig vector. Yeah, Is that the right, right way to yeah. think about that? Yeah. So that you train this autoencoder model only on pigs. Yep. So it knows nothing but pigs. Yeah. All, it's pigs all the way down. Yep. Right. And, you know, we, we make these latent spaces pretty small and inject some noise. We don't mm-hmm. want them to overfit. It's boring if they just memorize the data. Mm-hmm. Just use the data. Right. So this little vector can barely, barely manage to generate a pig, but it does a pretty good job of generating pigs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you give it a pig with eight legs. Well, it never sees pigs with eight legs. So it encodes through the encoder, the recurrent neural network, it encodes some numbers that were driven by those, those strokes, including the eight legs. Mm-hmm. But when it decodes it, what's remembered by that embedding is that there were four, mm. right? And I think it's kind of nice. You know, also the other example that I talked about in the keynote was if you have the same pig class, this, the same pig autoencoder, and you take a nice drawing of a, of a semi-truck, Right. You know, <laughs> it decodes, guess what, as a pig truck, right? Like it kind of turns into a pig because that's what the pig model knows about is pigs. And it's at one level, that's a weakness, right? It's like, well, but there are so many other things in the world. But of course, you can train more models and you can train models that right. are conditional so they can represent more than one thing. It's that this latent space is really capturing some important aspects of pigness, right? Mm-hmm. And people have someone else um, in open source, not us, took those very embeddings and then did something fun. They started looking for examples of pigs in the quick draw data set that were far away from that embedding. Mm. So you imagine you, you embed a bunch of pigs, so you get mm-hmm. the average embedding. You, know, you don't have to embed all of them, embed 10,000 of them, you get the average, mm-hmm. right? Just take the average. And then from there you embed a pig and you take its distance. How far away is it right. from that average, right? And then like, what's fun is they just, they just found really poorly drawn pigs or they uh-huh. occasionally someone would have just written the word pig. Okay. <laughs> you know, and it's like, <laughs> that's not a pig. I mean, it says pig, but these models didn't learn to read. And so, and so you get this weird kind of fun outlier detection and, you know, you can cluster huh. the space too. A lot, that's often done with word devec models where you, right. you say, okay, like for cats, there are, it's not that there are just, you know, several million completely unique cats. People kind of either draw them in profile Mm-hmm. you know, or they draw the, just the, the cat's head. Right. And sometimes the profile flips this way or this way. And if you, in this embedding space, if you do clustering in the embedding space, so you look for, you know, mm. it's not like given the number of pos- the possible values in this embedding, everything is equally spread out. It's right. like there are mountains, right? right. And here's the, the, the profile mountain and here's the profile the other way mountain and here's the face mountain. Mm-hmm. And you can visualize that and kind of get an idea, you know, what people are really doing hmm. with these drawings. Can you then identify a a distance from your average pig vector beyond which you won't be able to recognize something as a pig. Yeah. And that's the, that's the classifier's job. In this case, it was an autoencoder. So it wasn't trying to decide whether something was a pig or not. Mm. It was trying to draw a pig. So there's no, there's no magic value, but you could always calculate one, right? You can kind of figure out where, where, where you're going. It's important to keep track of the goals, right? That, you know, this is, this is a kind of small, it's a large data set in terms of the number of samples we have, mm-hmm. but you know it's a pretty simple drawing task. I think it's right. it's fun to think about where we can go if we have if we have better data and and better models. And where's that? So I think there are a couple of possibilities. One is that we just nail it and we we basically do something that happens one in a million times, which is we invent a new art form mm-hmm. or we enable a new art form. 
Now, it's been done before. Technology has done this before. The film mm-hmm. camera enabled a new art form, right? Mm-hmm. The drum machine enabled a new art form. Mm-hmm. And we could probably, together, we could riff, and if we had a whiteboard, we'd come up with 30 or 40 of them. Mm-hmm. But we wouldn't want to forget that there were another, you know, thousands and thousands of... Did the theremin invent a new art form? <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> right? The synthesizer, yes, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe we'll invent a new art form. And mm-hmm. it's really interesting to think, like, what would the core of that art form would be that the artist would have something smart against which to, to project ideas. I think that would be mm-hmm. the core. That, you know, you can try things out with, with your sequencer, you know, or you can try things out with Photoshop, or you can try things out with, with a pen and paper. Mm-hmm. But the idea that we would have machine intelligence models trained that are, by analogy, as smart as Translate... Mm-hmm. Right, because they're trained right, and you, like that's really, really interesting to mm-hmm. me. There's an inherent limitation in that, in that it we're training on for the most part things that we've seen before, right? And so it kind of cuts off, at least intuitively, seems to cut off this creative avenue for innovating, for you know, creating the wholly new thing. I agree, and I think that I think that if we create a new art form, it will be through gradual through many, many interaction loops of artists working with this technology. Mm. So for, like, that's not that crazy to think about if you watch what happened with the 808 drum machine and drum machines mm-hmm. moving forward. People first used drum machines on on sort of, you know, Roland's terms. This is what a drum machine is, you know. Right. But gradually, they just were like, I'm going to use it however I want, right. right? And then the drum machines were manufactured to, to adapt to that, etc. Mm-hmm. And I think one way to think about this is, if this were to actually generate a new art form of interest, you train a model it generates some things that are somewhat surprising to you, but you like, you keep them. Mm-hmm. You change your writing style somewhat or you change your performance style somewhat. Maybe, you know, like I can imagine living in a world where the data is so important, but like part of what you do as an artist is create data. Mm-hmm. And so in some sense, you're like, you are helping create this model because you're the one providing it with its lifeblood, with data, or mm-hmm. alternately you're hacking the model either because you're a coder, right? right? So then you say, okay, this model changed slightly how I do music. Maybe it add, added some rhythms to my repertoire I don't usually use, or it does mm-hmm. some crazy harmonization that I wouldn't normally do. And then you make some more music and then you retrain your model, but now there's new stuff there, right? And you've moved mm-hmm. a little bit, mm-hmm. right? I don't think the movement has to be earthquake large, you know, it doesn't have to be groundbreakingly large to be new, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Imagine just like if we kind of work out a new way to harmonize music. So all, you know, you have a melody and you have all these extra voices, you know, just imagine via a model that's trained, right? We suddenly get different kinds of, of harmonizations that we didn't get before. Hmm. That would already be interesting. Or another example I like, which is crazy hard, but I think is very evocative. I think like a long form, something long form, like a novel. Right. Mm -hmm. And think about plot. Right. Right. Like plot. Plot is hard, right? You can like I. My hat's off to someone who can write like a long. I'm, my hat's off to, to Game of Thrones and keeping right. all these characters straight. Right? <laughs> George R. R. Martin is my hero, but you could imagine like imagine like some writers care less about plot and they really care about character. They care about texture. Mm-hmm. Imagine the right kind of machine learning model that can generate intricate plots with really interesting relationships between characters and movement of mm-hmm. action, right? Such that like. Maybe in a way that's even, you know, at some level of complexity, too hard for a human to do because Mm -hmm. it can search out more possibilities. But yet maybe everything kind of clicks and lands and it feels good as the reader to be like, oh, wow, that character just came and did that. That's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. Almost like writing jokes that have sort of three punchlines that all, you know, land at the same time. That like, because, you know, 
machine learning algorithms are really good at high dimensional spaces with right. lots of possibilities. You know, maybe we'd land at some new form of storytelling. I don't think it would be one where we would care about reading the computer's story, but that the computer might add something to the writer's world where like, mm. in some sense, the writer might offload plot. Be like, that's not, I don't do plot. What I do with the plot is something even more interesting. Like mm. I, I, I shape it, I craft it, I make it beautiful to read, right? So that's one way to think about it that like, you know, I don't want this to be too long winded, but it's really important to me. Like what the drum machine did was in one really important way, it offloaded some of the percussion work. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you want to be cynical about it, then you're like, oh yeah. And it just killed, it just killed percussion. It didn't. Mm. It offloaded one thing and that opened up a bunch of other opportunities. Right. right? And so then the idea is, well, what sort of things can you offload onto a super smart machine learning model? Mm Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I don't know. I don't know the answer. But I mean, if you know, if you move through different kinds of media from painting to music to, mm-hmm. to literature, you certainly can get some some ideas. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And so Magenta as a whole is kind of an umbrella for a bunch of these different directions, right? Maybe take a second to talk about Magenta and how Google thinks about that, why Google's even, you know, bothering. Tell us about Magenta. Yeah, it's, this is funny. These, this question usually comes early, right? It's good. It's good to have this come after people have heard some specifics. Uh-huh. So the basic idea is of Magenta is posing the question: you know, what can we do with deep learning and reinforcement learning in the space of creativity? Mm-hmm. And we've already fully realized that the, the the meat of the problem lies in these algorithms interacting with musicians and artists. Mm-hmm. And that's not because we're afraid of trying to get these models to be interesting on their own. But that I think that's how art works. It's collaborative. Yeah. You know, other artists are working together, and we're thinking, you know, these things are going to work with artists. And so we, in the last year, Magenta's been around publicly for about a year. And before we launched, we were working on it for another six months. Mm-hmm. We've done work in music sequence generation, including musical scores and also performances like we did today. We've done work in generating new kinds of sounds, mm-hmm. NSynth project, which is basically building a, a synthesizer where all of the sounds are dreamt up by a neural network. Mm-hmm. And... We've done some unpublished work in joke telling. And oh, it's, really? It's unpublished because, <laughs> well, <laughs> we were, it wasn't very funny. No, we did a summer internship, like looking at joke telling as an uh, exercise in generating interesting surprises. I think especially punchline-driven yeah. humor yeah. is like, oh, that was surprising in a nice way. You if know, you ask my kids, like yeah. getting to the level of dad joke, it should I know, not be hard. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. We're both dads here. We should be experts at this. Like if we just team up. Um, yeah, and what my motivation, actually speaking of kids, my... Okay, so let me finish. The, and then thinking a little bit more about language, but most of what we've had to do... Oh, and then learning to sketch, the sketch, sketch RNN stuff, mm-hmm. and then some implementations of style transfer for images. So, So we've got kind of a wide array of things that we're trying i think the glue of the project what holds it together is a we're limiting ourselves to deep learning and reinforcement learning Mm -hmm. we're looking at creative applications of machine learning but we're not going to try everything like there are lots of ways to solve these problems lots of great ways right we're not saying that machine learning is the only way of the sort we're doing it's just like we got to limit ourselves to something so Mm -hmm. we're you know we're really linked to tensorflow Mm -hmm. also that really what we care about are like behind these, this one year of trying some new things, I think the really core issues lift above any specific medium. I think it's about, it's about storytelling and narrative, whether mm-hmm. it's music or paintings or literature. And it's about structure and narrative arc and about 
these ideas about surprise and what what makes something simple. So I think there's a there's a whole area of like you know generative models for media that mm-hmm. that you know can we generate interesting bits of media for us to share that help us tell the story of our lives mm-hmm. and uh, you know different modes of communication possibly coming from this, actually almost certainly coming from this. You know those are the goals. Why is Google doing this? Well, like one thing is we're publishing a lot of papers, so we're part of Google Brain and. The framework of generative models is important. It's important. Mm-hmm. It's an important research topic. And the idea that you, you know, maybe you'd want to generate, you know, new candidate molecules. Maybe you'd want to look at healthcare. Maybe you'd want to look at something for robotics and generating trajectories. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, when I look at what my kids are doing with their mobile devices, I've got a 13-year-old and an 18-year-old. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're information seeking, they're entertainment, and they're communicating with their friends, right? So there's a huge chunk of what we're doing with com- computation that has to do right. with entertainment. And I think, you know, it's a really f- important area of research. I mean, mm-hmm. just, you know, just point blank. I think music and art are important. They are important for our lives. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely worth investing some time into it. Awesome. So that's what we're doing. Awesome. Anything else that you'd like to mention or any other places that folks should look or... Are there, you know, three canonical resources to, you know, for folks that really want to dig into this? Yeah. So there's two things I would say. First, please visit g.co slash magenta. That's uh-huh. the shortest link I have. And we have a blog. <laughs> we have a blog there that's getting, if you want to geek out, what'd you call it? Nerd time? What did you say? Uh, nerd alert. Nerd, <laughs> yeah. We, we, nerds. <laughs> listener nerds. If you like that, come look at our blog. And the other thing is, we're very, very actively trying to engage with some particular types of folks in the community. There are three types. One type is pretty obvious, artists and musicians, fine. Mm-hmm. And then there's always the machine learning folks, nerd alert. Mm-hmm. But there's this middle middle ground where I think there's probably more there than any place else. And it's, it's in this kind of world of creative coding. Mm. Do you know what I mean by mm-hmm. that? So like, Well, tell it, me what you mean by that. Well, I have my own idea. I mean, but. I'm sort of stealing that, you know, creative coding is, is just that it's coding. I mean, the way I define it is it's the creative aspects of coding, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to back to so coding or coding applied to creative. It's that. Yeah. Aspects. Sorry. I said okay. it wrong. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was talking about how a musician might play a few hours of music and then use that mm-hmm. to drive a machine learning model. And in some sense they're hacking the model because they're mm-hmm. providing the data, but also building these models is a creative thing in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to build some frameworks where like, if there were an artist who knew how to code mm-hmm. some, you don't have to be like the world's best machine learning coder, mm-hmm. but we have some models where, you know, you could change a few things. You mm-hmm. could, you could say, I want, if you had some way that you could, for example, let's say you wanted the music that was generated by the model to be more shimmery, mm-hmm. whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Fine. If you think you know what it means and you can define that in a way that if we get a piece of music and you say, Oh, that sounds more shimmery. Yeah. Then we can actually use that with the mo- We can train the model to do a better job of generating that kind of music. Right. See what I'm saying? So I don't know. I think there's a whole a whole direction of like having coding be part of artistic generation mm. and that machine learning and a project like Magenta is really a core place to try that. And so we're trying to get more people through open source to work with us, to collaborate with us, to mm. make art and make music and, and hack stuff. Awesome. And so we'd love to see more people from, you know, from your listeners join us. That's it. Just, that's what I want to say. Uh, awesome. <laughs> well, thanks so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I'm sure folks will enjoy listening to it. Thanks for all your great questions, Sam. Thanks, Doug. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued support, comments, and feedback. 
A special thanks goes out to our series sponsor, Intel Nirvana. If you didn't catch the first show in this series, where I talked to Naveen Rao, the head of Intel's AI products group, about how they plan to leverage their leading position in proven history and silicon innovation to transform the world of AI, you're going to want to check that out next. For more information about Intel Nirvana's AI platform, visit www.intelnirvana.com. Remember that with this series, we've kicked off our next O'Reilly AI Conference ticket giveaway early. To enter, just let us know what you think about any of the podcasts in this series, or post your favorite quote from any of them on the show notes page, on Twitter, or via any of our social media channels. Make sure to mention at TwimmelAI, at Intel Nirvana, and use the hashtag TwimmelAISF so that we know you want to enter the contest. Full details can be found on the show notes pages. And of course, all entrants get one of our slick Twimmel laptop stickers. Speaking of the show notes, you can find links to all of the individual show notes pages in this series by visiting the series page at twimmelai.com slash O'ReillyAINY. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.